Welcome back to another great episode. We're going to cover a case that I am not familiar with. But before we do that, I have an incredibly awkward story to share with you. So, you know, I went to Chicago, right? I went to this work conference. Did you see my pictures? I saw a picture with you and Rob Gronkowski. Oh my God, he is hilarious. Like in college, it would have been on like Donkey Kong. So I didn't know anything really about him other than, again, famous football player, whatever. Go to the meet and greet. You get like literally two seconds, smile, take the pick, accidentally touched his butt. Ooh. But it really was an accident because he's so tall, you know? I was like going up to the hip, but I hit the butt first. Okay. So that wasn't the awkward part, right? Fast forward, I get invited to this dinner. Reps are paying for it. Very nice place. Steak 48, Chicago. Highly recommend. All these girls in marketing, you know, they're like super cute and they're wearing their lace dress. So anyways, they're going to go out. And you know me, I'm 100 years old. You guys need to get hold of me if you end up in the same spot that Rob Gronkowski is out because I know this man is going out drinking tonight. She's like, that's fine. We'll just send him up to your room. I was like, no, that's okay. He's married. Would that have been your response? Like, oh, no, it's okay. He's married. No, my response would have been, sounds like a good plan. Send him on up. (laughs) That's exactly where I would go differently. She looked at me with pure innocence in her eyes and said, I didn't mean it like that. What? Yeah. I don't know what. Obviously, I'm not on that wavelength, but I was pretty embarrassed. You were embarrassed by that? Yes. I literally just met this lady, Chelsea, that day. I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Well, listen, I would have just told Chelsea to send him on up. He's actually very wealthy. He's done very well for himself. Oh, yeah, he is. Mm -hmm. But I don't know how many cylinders he's firing on. He kind of annoys me because he's not just goofy. I've met goofy people that I fucking love because they take life light. His head is just light. It's full (laughs) of fucking helium. There is nothing there. So, yes, I I do get a little annoyed when I see him because he's still an analyst occasionally on NFL. Yeah, so they asked him, like, oh, how do you prepare for that? And he starts laughing. I I actually don't prepare at all. I just show up, make conversation, and hope they update me. So that's probably why you're partially not impressed with him. No. He says he just shows up, but he's missing the part where they write out every single word for him to say. Because he can clearly not think for himself after playing in the NFL that long. He is just dumb. (laughs) They were asking him a question that he didn't necessarily have an answer to. He just has a super goofy ass laugh. He does. Oh my God. It drives me nuts. Meanwhile, everybody in the room, I felt like was in love with him. I mean, his wife, I looked her up. She's banging hot. She is hot, hot. Well, of course she is. His wallet is thick. His head is not. I don't know if he's gifted in other areas. That's something only she can answer, but Ugh, I don't know if I could live with that the rest of my life. I'm just saying money only goes so far. That is not how I feel. You would go nuts. Don't even lie. I don't know how I would feel about it like in a kitchen, but at a bar, he just seems like the type of guy that you'd be like, let's go get a drink. And the next thing you know, you're snorting cocaine in a bathroom. With your top off. Yeah, for sure. 
<laughs> Sounds like you had a fun week then. I'm glad one of us did. It's good to hear. Oh, good. Good. I wish I was the kind of friend that wanted to hear about that. Oh, jokes on you because you're going to hear about it. No, I'm just kidding. You, you've kind of already heard about how much I hated my life this week. So I didn't go out once all week. Nothing. Oh, really? Dead? Yes. We kept busy enough to get paid. While I don't like being at work, I also like being at work. It's this really weird, sick issue I have. I get bored. I like to work. Well, in my younger years, I thought I never wanted to retire, and now it can't come soon enough, so I don't know what the answer is for me. Well, I mean, if you would have banged it out with Gronkowski, we could have been. Oh, I love him. I love you. I love him. Tag him in the show notes. Oh, we've talked about him enough. I can't even with him. I love him so much. He was Rob Gronkowski (laughs) for Halloween, the cow costume. So cute. So cute. Let's get into a little bit more of our topic, a serious topic. Are you ready for that? Oh, you know, I can be. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. So today's case explores the depths of unconditional love and the complexities it presents. Now, we've all heard that saying, a face only a mother could love. But what happens when that love is put to the ultimate test? Can a parent truly love without limits? regardless of their child's actions or circumstances. We live in a world where words often come easy and the claim of unconditional love is tossed around effortlessly. As humans, many times we do prioritize our own needs and desires above anyone or anything else. And that includes our children. We make promises, we utter heartfelt words, but do we really mean them? Ultimately, it is through experience and adversity that the weight of the words we say is truly measured. Today's case, we encounter a father named Terry Caffey who is forced to face unimaginable adversity, the slaying of his entire family at the hands of his own daughter. Through it all, Terry's unwavering love for his daughter remains steadfast and unshakable. It really serves as a testament to the strength and resilience that can exist within family bonds. This case will make you question your own understanding of love, loyalty, and sacrifice. Did she happen to hit every branch on the way out of the ugly tree, or what was the a face only a mom could love? I just know that I've heard you say it many times in our friendship. <laughs> about different people. And so I thought I would put it in the introduction Uh, so you could understand it. Sure. Yeah. I have probably said it more than I should. So I as well. Some people do have a face only a mother could love. Actually, you know who comes to mind with that? Oh my God, please don't even say it. Rob Gronkowski. No, 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 he doesn't. Actually, everybody loves him. Everybody actually loves him. Well, we'll move along then. The Caffey family lived in a quiet little town called Emory, Texas. It's described as one of those small communities where everyone knows everyone, and if they don't know you, they certainly know someone who knows you. Out of all the families in Emory, the Caffeys were the one family who seemed to have it all. People really looked up to them. Their life was very much centered around God and the church. At the head of the family was Terry, and by his side, his wife, Penny. 
God gave me a wonderful family. I was married to a wonderful woman. Her name was Penny. Penny and I were married for 18 years. Together, Penny and I, we worked together side by side in our local church uh, uh, there at Lakewood Baptist. And of course, we moved our membership and took leadership role over at Miracle Faith Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. And there, Penny played the piano. Penny was a, was a good godly mother. She was... Uh, one of these kind of women that would, would rather be behind the scenes, did not like to be noticed, uh, loved serving the Lord, loved, God blessed her with such a wonderful musical talent. Even in that clip, you can hear religious undertones of the family. That was Terry, the patriarch. Together, the couple had three children, Tyler, Matthew, also known as Bubba, that was their nickname for him, and Aaron. As in most families, all three children had completely different personalities. The youngest was Tyler, who was born in April of 99, and he was mischievous, quick-witted, one of those kids who was always getting into something. If anything were to get broken in the home or happen, you could almost guarantee that Tyler was either the ringleader or involved in some capacity. He loved being physically active. He loved climbing trees, jungle gyms, you name it. He really wasn't afraid of much either. He just had that carefree, innocent, childlike mentality and spirit. One evening, right before I got home from work, Penny's brother stopped by and he, and he knocked on the door and he said, Sis, I don't want to get Tyler in trouble, but do you have any idea that he's up on the roof? She said, the roof? What in the world is he doing on the roof? And So Penny goes running outside and she wasn't thinking about her safety and she scales that ladder. She's at the top of that ladder and she's shaking and holding on for dear life and she's looking up at little Tyler. He's five years old at this time. He managed to drag an extension ladder out from behind my shed, pull it out, extend it out, lock it in place, had it up on the roof and there's little Tyler, five years old setting up on that roof. So now there's his mother holding on for dear life, said, son, what in the world are you doing on the roof? I'm just looking around. She said, looking around? She said, what could you possibly be looking for up on the roof? She said, can't you do that from down here? And without missing a beat, and as quick-witted as Tyler was, he said, mama, I'm looking for heaven. It just sounds like a joke you'd tell in a church, you know what I mean? Or a true story. Or a true story, but, you know, also in a church. Again, you can hear these children were brought up in a very religious household. At the age of five, Tyler saying he's looking for heaven. I mean, he has to be immersed in that church life in order to make that connection at that young age. Oh, absolutely. The second eldest was Matthew, or Bubba, as the family and friends called him. He was a big boy, which attributed to his nickname. At 13 years of age, he stood six foot four and weighed 240 pounds with a size 13 shoe. Sheesh. Yeah, that's a big adult, let alone a big 13-year-old. Now, I know we've met people like this before, have had them in my life, you've had them in your life. These physically large men who everyone describe as big teddy bears. And this was exactly what Matthew was. He was a big teddy bear with a big heart, a very sensitive and shy personality. One of his favorite outlets was music. 
By the time Bubba was 13 years old at the time of his death, Bubba could play the guitar as good as any grown man without having a lesson in his life. Terry and Penny Kathy's eldest was their daughter, Erin. Erin was very well known in the community of Emory, particularly in the church community. Like her family, Erin was incredibly musically talented. She sang in the church choir, and it was noted that people who heard her were so taken aback by her talent that they were moved to tears. Many were quoted as saying, she sang like a cherub. In fact, her pastor said that if he wanted to multiply the population of the church, he wished he could clone a couple of Aaron Cathy's. Aaron was always a good young lady, never caused her mother and I any problems, very active in her youth group, uh, always had a smile on her face, straight-A student, just a good young lady. Physically, Erin was also an attractive young girl. She had blonde hair, blue eyes. She was very petite. She really had many admirers. Have you looked up her picture? Yeah. So she's like what I would consider white trash hot, like trailer park hot. I appreciate your honesty because I 1000% agree. She's okay. I will say that throughout the research, there were many places where people were just gushing about Erin Cathy's looks. And if she was as beautiful as many have said she is, I would say it no matter if she's a victim, a perpetrator, whoever she is. I also appreciate beauty. However, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said that maybe she was a white trash beautiful. If she lived in a trailer park, she'd be running that shit. Mm-hmm. Or like work fast food or something. For <laughs> sure, she would have people flirting with her for free fries. But you <laughs> yeah. know, other than that, I don't know how far those looks would get her. We've discussed this before as well. In prison, she may be a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Based sure. on her looks. It's just a little hard because I know you said you felt like you could run it, you know, and I do feel like you could run it for sure. So I wouldn't put her on your level at all, but I think she definitely could be head of laundry or something. Sure. Maybe the kitchen. See, I also remember you telling me that I had a face for prostitution and that would help me run prison as well. Yeah. So... I'm not sure where you're going with your compliments, but I feel like that was a much better one, and I appreciate it. Apparently in Emory, Texas, there wasn't many pickings because, as I said, she had many admirers. There were teenage boys who joined the church just to see Aaron. The church is where the Kathy children's social lives began and ended. Because Terry and Penny were suspicious of public education, the children were homeschooled. And there is a specific reason that they pulled their kids out because initially Aaron and her siblings were in public school. An incident occurred where a girl approached Aaron and kissed her romantically. And her parents found out about this. They immediately pulled the children out of the school. They felt that a religious-based education was best for their family. And to be quite honest, in this Bible Belt, of Emory, Texas, it was very acceptable. This choice, however, did cause strife within the family, particularly between Aaron and her parents. 
When you're being homeschooled, your social life is extremely limited. Erin was like all other teenage girls. She wanted friends. She wanted to socialize. He's right. When you are being homeschooled or in a one-room schoolhouse like your past, you are very secluded. Did you get that feeling as a young child? Absolutely. You are very isolated. When there's five kids in your grade, there are not a lot of options as far as looks, intelligence, a full set of teeth are concerned. Valid points. All valid. So because of this pushback and strife with Aaron wanting to have a social life, Terry and Penny felt that a good compromise would be to let Aaron get a job outside the home. She'd get a little independence, she could make some money, and she would get that social aspect that she craves and really does need at that age. When Aaron turned 16 in July of 2007, she got her driver's license and an old Chevy pickup truck. With this newfound independence, her parents also allowed her to get a job at a local fast food place, Sonic, as a car hop. Now, just an FYI, in case it's unclear or you're unsure, a car hop is a waitress or waiter who serves patrons their food directly to their cars. Back in the day, they wore roller skates. Now that you mention it, that is what Erin did. She was one of the only waitresses who wore roller skates. It seems like she really enjoyed this job. A co-worker who worked with Erin during this time frame was quoted as saying, She gushed innocence. A lot of guys flirted with her, and she would just gush and smile and duck her head down and skate inside and tell me, That guy wanted my number. And I'd say, Did you tell him that your mom would be answering the phone? You're going to hate her. Why are you trying to cock block her? Yeah. Just like in the church, Erin gained many male admirers at Sonic, and one that she took an interest in, Charlie Wilkinson. It appeared that whenever Erin Caffey went to work at the restaurant, Charlie Wilkinson just happened to pull into the parking lot. Charlie Wilkinson himself told me that when he first uh, saw Erin Caffey, he said, I'm going to marry that girl. That's how captivating. He thought she was. I do think, especially if you ask my sister, that love connections can be made via fast food. She sent her phone number out on a chicken sandwich to her husband. Well, now he's her husband. At the time, he was not her husband. And that's how they ended up connecting, getting married, and having two kids. Wow. At this point, I think that there's potential. I had no idea that's how they met. Oh, yeah. What fast food place was this? Uh, It's a little slum place called Hot Now. They had like 20 cent hamburgers. He had a really big blue truck. And so she felt like she should shoot her shot. The rest is history. What a love story. Taylor Swift could not write that. Charlie was what you would describe as a kind of bad boy type. And I don't know if your sister's current husband was at that time, but it kind of sounds like it. He had the big blue truck. Charlie also drove a large Ford Explorer. It was a little beat up, but he had that vibe as well. Aaron was apparently attracted to this side of him. He was 18 years old and she was 16. So we do have a two-year age gap. 
He was entering his senior year of high school. In fact, he had met Aaron at Sonic just a few weeks after returning home from boot camp at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, with his Texas National Guard unit. His plan after high school was to go on active duty. He did have a plan for his future. However, he came from a less than stellar background. His parents had split up when he was very young. His mother moved several hours away, and he only saw her a few times a year. Physically, he was a good-looking kid. He had sandy hair, light blue eyes. He nearly always wore a pair of Wranglers, black cowboy boots, and an oversized black cowboy hat. I did look him up as well. I do think he's an attractive kid, more so than Aaron. So I'm not sure how that worked out. but Well, sometimes in little towns, you have to date beneath you, you know? I kind of feel that's what he did, although he's not a super catch himself, but there's a difference there. He was an avid hunter. He knew his way around a firearm. Criminally, Charlie had no history or even any disciplinary issues at school. Friends and classmates would admit, though, that he was a hothead with a quick temper. Throughout the summer, Charlie visited the Sonic frequently to see Aaron, eventually working up the nerve to ask her out, and Aaron was instantly taken with him. Charlie seemed to be infatuated with her, too. A friend named Dion Kip Jr. recalled, He was totally in love with her and considered her his soulmate. Charlie talked about Aaron 24-7. I guess, you know, Charlie was my first real boyfriend. Every girl my age, you know, talks about, you know, getting pregnant and having a family. And every girl wants that. And I guess I just thought I was grown. That was Erin. And at what age is she talking about right now? She's 19 in that audio clip, but she was 16 years old. Said everybody was talking about having kids, but even in the year 2000, when I graduated high school, there wasn't a single person who was talking about having children. No. They actually got sent to an alternative school. Okay. (laughs) Well, now they keep them in the class, right? Like they have to. But back then, you were not going to mainstream. You got booted and sent down the road with the people who were failing and on tethers. You're right, though. They did used to do that. Now they don't at all, do they? That's interesting. I do recall like all the bad kids going on a different bus to a different school. And it was, yeah, alternative ed. Sadly, they still seem like they belong in it for my friends on Facebook that it used to go. So I guess it just followed them. So maybe integrating into classrooms <laughs> is the answer. Maybe they can turn it around. Is that what you're saying, you asshole? I'm thinking maybe they've gotten it right now. Yeah. As the summer turned to fall, Erin wanted Charlie to meet her parents, and we know this is a big step in any relationship. Erin was really hoping that her parents would see in Charlie what she saw in him, that they would embrace him, welcome him, but things didn't quite go according to plan with this first meeting. The very first time I met Charlie, I wasn't too enthused. My wife and Erin had invited him over for supper one evening. Uh, so as I come in the door, uh, there's Charlie sitting in my recliner. And as soon as I walk in the door, I walk in and said, hello, are you Charlie? And he looked at me and said, yeah, and you are. And I said, I happen to be Aaron's dad. Could you stand up and greet me? So he stood up. 
began to greet me, and he stuck out his hand, and he shook my hand. I asked him, I said, do you always sit in a chair like that? He goes, yeah. And I said, well, it's yes, sir, but not in my chair. You need to you stand up and greet someone when they walk in the door. There was just something not quite right about him. I 100% agree with Mr. Caffey there. No, it's a total dick move. I don't care who you're meeting, you stand up, especially in the South, and especially knowing how religious her entire family is. There's no way she didn't forewarn him or that he didn't know. There's not a chance in hell. Now, this meeting really set the tone of the rest of the relationship between Charlie, Terry, and Penny. Needless to say, Charlie was not well-liked. He did continue to stick around and stay in Aaron's life, however, with the Cathy's giving the relationship some room to grow. Though the Cathy's would not allow Charlie to take Aaron out alone, the two teenagers still managed to spend much of their time together. Charlie stopped by Sonic every afternoon during Aaron's half-hour break, and at night he was a frequent guest at the Cathy's home, so they did allow this. At 9 o'clock, though, Charlie was forced out of the home every night. Right after he would say goodbye, Aaron would immediately call him on the phone. She was then allowed to talk to him until 10 p.m., at which point the Cathy's made her get off the phone. On the weekends, this time changed to 11. So there were definitely some guidelines set down with this relationship, which sounds pretty standard to me for a 16-year-old girl. I don't find that overly strict. Do you? No. My parents, in hindsight, were less strict than I thought. I mean, I was allowed to be alone with lots of boys. When they were home, they were sleeping. They never, literally never walked downstairs to check on us. And there were never any restrictions as far as how late someone could be there. Oh, you're a good kid, though. I was a pretty good kid. In a lot of the research, it was noted that the Caffeys were incredibly strict with Aaron. I will say this opinion seemed to be based more on their religious beliefs than their actual parenting style. Yes, they taught religious education to their children. Yes, they went to church and they were heavily involved. But people were almost using that as a scapegoat, like, oh, that religious family. Do you understand what I'm saying? I wholeheartedly understand what you're saying. I think people do that crap all the time. One kid could have the same rule than the other kid, but just because that one family is religious, they blame it on religion. It's correlation, not causation. Correct. You're exactly right. And that's what I've seen a lot in this. And I just wanted to make a note of that. Try and separate those two because for many parents out there, these restrictions they put in place would be acceptable. Now, they did give Charlie grace, though. They let him hang around that home. He also began attending church at Miracle Faith, where Pastor McGahey said, I don't think anyone worried about him and Aaron at first. We thought it was just puppy love. And most people did hold this view of the relationship. Even the Cathy's themselves viewed this as a puppy love situation. This did change, though, when Aaron came home with what looked to be an engagement ring. So I went and found Aaron, and she's got this big diamond ring. It wasn't some 
cheap thing. It was it looked like a pretty nice, expensive ring. And I think it was his mother's or grandmother's ring or whatever. Ring symbolized in Charlie's eyes security. It was his mother's ring from his parents' broken marriage, and it was his way of trying to say, putting this ring on her is going to give me that family, that life back that I lost. Aaron shows up with this ring, gifted from Charlie. They say in the research that it's an engagement ring. Some places say it's a promise ring. Aaron herself, in a later interview, says that it was a promise ring. I don't know what they considered it at that time. She may just be saying it's a promise ring now, years later. Either way, the public became very aware of just how serious these two kids were when she shows up with this ring. Naturally, people began sticking their nose in business where it doesn't belong. And soon Terry would get a call from a fellow churchgoer who had stumbled across Charlie's MySpace page. It was very shocking to see. Uh, there was uh, comments on there about drinking, uh, a picture of him holding a Jack Daniels bottle, I do believe. There was language in there about um, about uh, one of his friends that he texted him and said, why don't you bring uh, that girlfriend of yours talking about Aaron over this weekend. We'll get wasted and have sex and just have a great time. And that was uh, that was pretty much it when we decided this is we need to put a stop to this. Was it like a gangbang then, or? Well, from the sounds of it, it really did kind of sound like that, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, even if I knew somebody was having sex, I wouldn't be like, "Hey, come over and let's have drinks and have sex." That's just not how it goes, I guess. Especially if we're thinking about Aaron, who is perceived as a very Christian, innocent girl. As far as the sexual preferences, to me, it did sound like perhaps, and we don't know this for a fact, that it was what we would call a gang bang. Is that the uh, scientific way to say gang bang? Yeah, you have to have the pause for dramatic effect. Go ahead and try it. I'd love to hear you say it. This is what most scientists would refer to as a gang bang. You're really talented in saying the phrase. I don't know why, but it came very naturally for you on that first attempt. This was a very shocking revelation, very disturbing for Terry and Penny, and just added to their disapproval of the relationship. Because of this coming to light, Terry and Penny would put tighter restrictions on the couple, limiting their interaction to really only about once a week in the home. And that was under supervision. So they were there watching the couple. This would make Aaron furious, as I believe it would anybody. They had valid reasons. But she's young, she's dumb, and she's in love, which is not a good combo, not only for the youth, but for adults as well. Erin was pretty close with her aunt, and she would often call her. She would tell her how angry she was, saying that she planned on running away with Charlie when she turned 17. So she's starting to think about ways to get out of that home and away from her parents' grasp. One night, Penny heard Erin giggling, and this was past her phone curfew, which was still in place. Penny informed Aaron after she walked in and found her talking on the phone to Charlie that she was grounded, her keys were taken away, the phone was taken away, and for weeks her parents would drive her back and forth from work. 
The worst of it all, though, was that Charlie's weekly visits were also now suspended. At this point, Aaron's really having almost no interaction with Charlie because of the Kathy's instilling disciplinary action. The arguing at home would become much worse. One night, Penny slapped Aaron across the face in the heat of an argument. People at church were seeing changes in the family as well. The pastor's wife noted that in February, Penny seemed withdrawn, that she declined going on a women's church retreat, saying she needed to spend more time with her family. All these changes were being noted, not just within that family unit, but out in the community as well. I could understand, I guess, how they would feel like they were losing any kind of control. Their daughter is now moving from this childhood innocence into this very adult life. I can understand the power struggle here. These are the things that you as a parent can control. The rest of it's on their own. I feel like Terry and Penny are doing what a lot of parents would do after seeing that MySpace post. I'm sure it really shook them just in general. As the family was falling apart, Terry's mind frame shifted to he had to put an end to this, put a stop to the relationship, get his family back on track. I'll never forget it was on a Wednesday night. We sat Aaron down in the living room there on the couch and her mother and I faced Aaron. We said, we love you, Aaron. We want what's best for you. I said, you've got two younger brothers that are watching. They're watching. They're going to follow your footsteps. And I said, Aaron, there's rules in the home. You just can't come and go as you please and do what you want. It's our responsibility to love you and to care for you and to see that you go the right way. And I said, Aaron, this relationship, it's over. I just assumed he would go on and find somebody else. Uh, She would shed tears like girls do. I don't know that I would say something along the lines of like, your relationship is over. I would try to put as much distance and time between them and let nature take its course. Obviously, at that age, you lose interest very quickly. I think you run the risk of having a lot of resentments and the kids feeling like they're controlled. Yes. And you talked about the children having resentment. And they do in all kinds of situations when the parents try to lay down the law. But this is probably the ultimate situation where hormones are pumping. You have this boy-girl relationship going on. And you're right. They felt very resentful, both Aaron and Charlie. However, Aaron would sit there while Terry was talking and begin crying and say that she had wanted to break up with Charlie that this is what she had wanted for the past couple weeks anyway. So she agreed with Terry. She said that she would break off things with Charlie. Terry thought that this conversation had an effect on her and that it worked. Now, the Cathys were skeptical about this breakup, but soon they would come to believe her as over the next few days, things would get better in the household. Erin seemed to be getting back to her old self prior to what she was before she began dating Charlie. This provided a lot of confidence for Terry that this problem with Charlie Wilkinson was going to eventually completely evaporate from their family, given time. But Erin was deceiving her parents. Behind Terry and Penny's back, Erin and Charlie had no intention of ever being apart. They were just buying time to figure out how they could get Aaron's parents out of their relationship and life. 
They really viewed Terry and Penny as a threat. They controlled Aaron, and all Aaron and Charlie wanted to do was be together. They were both incredibly infatuated with each other. Now, the couple needed a plan, one that wasn't temporary. According to Charlie Wilkinson, Aaron made it extremely clear that as long as her parents were around, the two of them were never going to get to be together. Charlie Wilkinson says that the only way they could be together is if her parents were out of the picture. Because as long as they were alive, they would thwart that relationship from developing. I can't say that Charlie is wrong here. Terry and Penny are very devoted parents, you can tell. Whether they're doing it right or wrong, in their eyes, they were doing the absolute best they could because they loved their daughter. Terry and Penny would never give up. And until she was of age, they did have that control. They would be able to keep those two apart. Apparently, this is why Aaron and Charlie believed running away wouldn't work either, because her parents would track her down, bring her home as she was underage. The couple wanted a more permanent solution. So they started planning whenever they could, and they weren't quiet about it either. At one point, Charlie would talk to a classmate saying he wished he could just get Aaron pregnant and that the parents would have no choice but to accept him. He would bring this idea up to Aaron. She actually adamantly disagreed with this. She thought that she was too young to have a baby. She just wanted her parents gone. They shared these sentiments to anyone who would listen at church, at school. It was very apparent to everyone who came in contact with the couple that Aaron had Charlie wrapped around her finger. She could get him to do just about anything that she wanted. It was the consensus among many witnesses that the killing of the Cathy's was primarily Aaron's decision, her pushing Charlie. That is a very permanent solution to a temporary problem, but that's how children's brains work. Aaron Cathy came to talk to me on the church bus around Thanksgiving. She said to me, Rose, I think I'm going to hire someone to kill my parents. Then, right after Christmas break, Charlie Wilkinson came to talk to me. At the cafeteria in school, he told me, I think I'm going to hire someone to kill Aaron's parents. I was sitting at one of the tables outside during lunch when Aaron and Charlie walked outside. They were talking about something, and then she said, My parents don't want us to be together, and the only way we can still see each other is if we kill them. Then they started laughing and walked off. I heard her tell him this about two weeks before the murders took place. That was two children going to church with Aaron who were in the same school. Investigators would go and take all these witness statements. And these were just two of many where they discovered that Aaron and Charlie were talking about killing her parents very, very publicly to many people. In each of these statements, they got the feeling that Aaron was the mastermind of this plan. And no one thought to say anything like, hey, Bill, just want to let you know. I don't know. It just seems like if I, I guess maybe they didn't think take it seriously. I would watch an interview with Aaron as I was doing this research where she mentioned that she would say to Dr. Phil, who was interviewing her, well, you know, kids always say, oh, I hate my parents and I wish they were dead. And yes, I do recall 
kids when I was growing up saying that because they had immature child minds. I think I've even said it before. I don't know about the dead part, but I definitely said I hate my parents when they really pissed me off. I can see why maybe some people didn't necessarily take it seriously as that was probably being said here and there by other people as well. I definitely can see myself. I hate my parents. I would say I just want to die. Like when you feel like there's no hope in the world, you know, I just want to die. But I can't see saying I'm going to hire somebody to kill them. No, no. (laughs) Yeah, no, now that you mention it, I think maybe the phrase hire someone to kill my parents is the next level that I didn't hear much of in my youth. Yeah, I think that goes into actually planning. You're right. My bad on that. I'm not sure why people didn't say anything other than the witnesses to all these statements were children themselves. I think a lot of them probably were in fear as well because Charlie Wilkinson had a bad boy rap. People were intimidated and scared by him. He was also a senior. She was a sophomore. So depending on who these people were, if it was other sophomores they were around that were hearing this, I believe that first statement we heard was a sophomore named Rose. They may have felt more intimidated as well because there's that hierarchy in the school system. Right. On the evening of Friday, February 29th, 2008, everything was peaceful in the Caffey home. I did something that night that I never did, have ever done before. Penny had already gone to bed. She was waiting for me. I was turning off a few lights and everything. And I was, and I, I remember going to each of my children to ask if they could stay up a little late and finish this movie. And I remember going up to Erin and I, and I kissed her on the forehead. And I said, I love you. She said, I love you too, Daddy. I went over to Matthew, big Matthew, 13 years old, 6'1, 240 pounds. And I kissed him and he had that little sheepish grin that he had and he, he wiped it away and I kissed him again over and he wiped that away and, and I just grabbed him and I just kissed him all over his face. I said, you'll never be too big for daddy's love. I love you, son. Went to little Tyler, eight years old. And he's over there, got a little pill over his head trying to hide from me, thinking I can't see him. I go over there and tickle him and I grab him and kiss him. I say, I love you. Love you too, daddy. I go into the bedroom and there's Penny sitting up in her bed reading her Bible and praying like she would so many nights. Praying for her family that she loves so much. And I remember getting into the bed and she closes her Bible and she places it on the nightstand next to her copy of Blindsight. We reach in the middle, lean into the middle. I kiss her goodnight. She turns her little nightlight out, her little lamp. I said, love you, good night." just assuming I would see her again in the morning. But my morning never came. Around 1.30 that morning, Charlie and a friend went to the Caffey home. The 21-year-old friend was named Charlie Wade. His girlfriend, Bobby Johnson, also tagged along and drove the duo. Just be aware, we have two Charlies here. Charlie Wilkinson, Aaron's boyfriend, and Charlie Wade, a friend of Charlie Wilkinson. Once at the Kathy home, they picked up Aaron. Bobby, Charlie Wade's girlfriend, drove around the foursome while they drank, they chatted. However, their chatter was not light conversation. The only reason the two boys had shown up at 1.30 that morning was to carry out the act of killing Aaron's parents. Charlie Wilkinson had promised Wade $2,000 to help get the job done. 
an amount of money that Wade was in desperate need of to get his child back in a custody battle he was currently embroiled in. And Charlie Wilkinson knew this. He took full advantage of that fact, offering up this $2,000. Now, Charlie would ask many times during this driving period if Aaron thought maybe it would just be better to run away together. Maybe this plan wasn't a good idea. Aaron, however, was emphatic about killing her parents, that it was the only way for their relationship to succeed. That's all it took for Charlie. They turned back toward the cafe home, planning to carry out what they had initially set out to do that morning, armed with a firearm and a samurai sword. So when they opened the door, they slung the door open. When it did, the doorknob hit the dryer. And I remember that cling, that loud metal click sound. And I immediately jumped up. And I'm thinking maybe it's Tyler came down, had a nightmare or something. And I, as soon as I s- sat up, bam, 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 the gunfire went off. And I remember just being so loud. And it was just, uh, it was almost, I can't believe, I, mean, I didn't know what it was going on at first. And, um, and I realized, Quickly, somebody's somebody's standing over us, shooting us. But everything was happening so quickly, me and Penny both were just screaming. During this initial attack, Penny would call out for Terry. Terry was in and out of consciousness. He had been shot. It was completely dark in the room. She couldn't see anything. The only response Penny got was from one of the attackers telling her that Terry was dead. They next told her that if she, quote, quit fighting this, it'll go quick. And it was at this point that one of the men grabbed the samurai sword they had came with that night and began slashing at Penny's neck as if they were trying to cut her head off. Again, Terry was next to her going in and out of consciousness. He would hear his wife in these bouts of comprehension making gurgling sounds beside him. I remember going in and out of consciousness. I could wake up and all I could taste is blood and gunpowder. I can't feel my right side. My face is numb. I'm trying to speak to see if my wife is okay, but I can't speak. And I can hear commotion in the living room. And, and all of a sudden, I could hear footsteps leading upstairs. And I began to panic because I knew whoever this was in my home. They were going after my children. I heard the gunshots. I heard Matthew being shot. I collapsed and went out. Not sure how long I was unconscious, but when I woke up, at first I thought I was dreaming. This was a nightmare. And I realized this wasn't a nightmare. This is real. This just happened. I finally, by the grace of God, I guess got to my feet. As I'm stumbling and and staggering and very weak, I can't see my wife anywhere. I don't know if she's okay. When I landed on the floor, I landed beside my wife. One look at her, I knew she was already gone. Terry heard his kids being murdered. He was aware of his wife next to him. He heard her dying. He saw her at one point dead. He went through a lot of trauma here. Does he ever say, like, did he want to live through it? Did he wish that he were dead? Because, in, at, I mean, honestly, at this point, I would wish I was dead. So, Oh, me too. And we're going to get to his emotions and feelings on this. At this point, he was still in shock. I'm not sure he quite knew exactly what was going on either. He was pretty confused. He was shot five times. Penny was shot and nearly decapitated. So when he saw her, her head was almost off of her body. Matthew was shot in the face and neck, and Tyler, the youngest boy in the Caffey family, was stabbed three times in the back of the neck while he hid in the closet. 
After this attack was complete, the two men, thinking everyone was dead, ransacked the entire house. Now, if you remember that $2,000 Charlie Wade needed for his custody dispute, this is what they were looking for. And they were looking for it because Erin had told the boys that her family had a safe inside the home with exactly $2,000 inside. After they ransacked the entire home, they then set it on fire. They were not leaving anything behind. These boys, however, had underestimated the head of this family. They didn't realize it at the time, but they had left one alive. And we know who that is, Terry Caffey. And when Terry Caffey woke again, he felt the heat of the fire. He realized his home was ablaze and he had a choice to make. Either pull himself up and escape or lay down and give up, dying with the rest of his family in the blaze. No way to get upstairs to my children. No way to get my wife out. The hardest thing I did that night was to climb out our bathroom window knowing they were in there and I couldn't get them out. And I guess it was just the shock that I was in because I'm thinking, if I can just get to my neighbors and get help, we can fix this. We can put this back together. Everything's going to be okay. But I tell young people all across this country, everywhere I go, that, listen, there's certain things you can't fix. There's there's certain things you can't put back. You can go too far. And this was one of them. Our closest neighbors were the Gastons, an elderly couple. They lived about 400 yards up the hill from where we lived. This took place in Alba, Texas, a rural East Texas town. We lived on about 20 acres. I began to make my way through my pasture, through the woods, trying to get to my neighbors. And I couldn't see their house, but I knew the direction I needed to go. And I can remember just taking a few steps, and I would collapse and fall down in the dirt. And I remember just dragging my body with my good left arm as my right side was completely paralyzed. I was weak, and I was in shock. And they said it probably took me an hour to crawl 400 yards that night, the length of four football fields. I remember at one point I stood up and there was a creek. I forgot about the creek even that divided me and my neighbor's property. I took one step and fell about 10 or 12 feet down into a creek bed. How I got out on the other side, I don't know, I guess just by the grace of God. As I began to dig my feet and my hands into the dirt and I grabbing hold to roots and I pulled myself up. As I landed on the other side, I laid there on the ground and, and I looked back and I, all I can see is my house totally engulfed. Unashamedly, I... Don't have it in me. I don't. I don't have it in me. I would have drowned in the creek bed on purpose. I completely agree. And I'm not sure if he was aware at this point that he didn't hear Aaron being shot. He actually heard his boys fighting for their life and begging and pleading and being shot. He did not hear Aaron. So I'm not sure if he was aware yet that maybe there was a survivor of his family. Maybe this was more automatic, a fight or flight kind of response biologically where he didn't necessarily cognitively think it through his biological instincts just took over which i could see happening that is probably also why he was able to crawl 400 to 500 yards in the condition he was in remember he was shot five times you look at that logically and you say there's no way humanly possible but when your body kicks in with that adrenaline rush and that biological instinct to survive It can do a lot more than what we would ever think it could. Terry did make it to the neighbors, the Gastons, barely alive. The Gastons knew the family very well. In fact, they were quite close to the family. They were more than neighbors. They were, we called them our kids. This is Tommy Gaston. I've got a man that's been shot. 
That was the actual 911 call that Mr. Gaston made when Charlie arrived at his home in really dire condition. And you can hear him get kind of snippy with the 911 dispatcher. And you know what? I would have too. Do you know how many times I feel like that? I understand it's their job to get information, but sometimes the information seems irrelevant. And then they get all pissed. Stay calm. Man, I need you to stay calm. Somebody's bleeding to death right in front of us. Stay calm. Yeah, I think there's definitely a better way to approach that situation than what that 911 dispatcher did. They do need as much information as possible. But we've also heard 911 calls where the dispatcher just nailed it. This one was a bit off. And I can understand why he hung up on her when he did. He has a dying man in front of him and nobody is there to help. He knows he has to stop this bleeding. He can't do it with her on the phone. Just it almost sounded like a nagging ass wife, didn't it? Either way, the help would come. Emergency medical professionals and law enforcement arrived on scene shortly after that 911 call. When they arrived on scene, they knew immediately when they saw Terry, that they had limited time with him. There was no guarantee this guy was going to live. And they wanted to get as many details as possible from Terry. As Terry was in and out of consciousness, he remembered brief moments of what he had heard, smelled, thought, and saw. And he shared those with the responding deputies and detectives on scene. I can hear my 13-year-old son, Matthew, the one we call Bubba. Bubba began to cry out as he said, no, Charlie, no, please don't do this. Charlie, why are you doing this? Please, Charlie, no, as he began to beg for his life. But the first words out of my mouth, I said, Charlie is coming to my house and he's murdered my family. I wanted to get that out in case I died because I wanted them to know who did this. Bubba, as they called him, inadvertently helped solve this case or this question of who had done it. 
because that is how Terry knew that it was Charlie. That was confirmation as he heard his son dying that Charlie was indeed the one who had done this to his family. One point of interest the detectives noted on scene was that there were only four bodies recovered from the blaze. Four bodies from a five-person family. Hmm. They were missing one. They also had gotten that statement from Terry, and they now knew that they had two individuals to locate here, Aaron and Charlie. They would locate Charlie first at his brother's trailer. Initially, they knocked on the door. Charlie's brother answered, telling them that Charlie wasn't there. He had been there earlier in the evening, but currently was nowhere to be found. Investigators went inside anyway, and lo and behold, they found Charlie inside, asleep on the couch, with a handgun next to him. They put him in handcuffs, and they brought him back to headquarters for interrogation. They were then able to call in their crime scene unit, who began processing the scene, gathering evidence. They found some pretty damning evidence almost immediately upon entering that trailer. They found Charlie's cowboy boots with blood on them, his 22 caliber handgun, a used condom wrapped in tissue laying next to the couch, and a samurai sword soaking in bleach in the backyard. As they continued searching, one of the investigators moved some clothing. This trailer was kind of a hoarder's paradise. There was a lot going on inside of it. When this investigator went to pick up what he thought was a blonde wig, he quickly realized that it was no wig. It was Aaron Caffey. They were shocked to find her there. They still considered Aaron a victim at that point. They took her to the hospital to get checked out. The detectives also requested a rape kit, a toxicology screening, and that Aaron's clothing be tested for signs of gunshot residue, also signs of soot from a fire. Aaron would write a written statement well at the hospital. I woke up in a house full of smoke and two guys with swords told me to lay face down and don't get up. Then they left the room, and that's when I got the phone and called my friend Charlie. Then the next thing I remember is waking up by the cops in that house, and I don't know whose it is or where I am. What she didn't know was that Charlie Wilkinson had been taken into the sheriff's station and confessed everything. An attack on a Range County family left a mother and her two sons dead and a father in the hospital. It was early Saturday morning when father and husband Terry Caffey crawled to his neighbor's house after being shot. Police say Penny Caffey and her 8 and 13 year old sons were shot and stabbed multiple times before dying. The house was then set on fire. In custody are 18 year old Bobby Johnson, 20 year old Charles Wade and 19 year old Charles Wilkinson. He's the boyfriend of 16 year old Aaron Caffey. She's the victim's daughter and has also been arrested. Each faces three counts of capital murder. According to court documents, Wilkinson confessed to police that, quote, he and Aaron were in love, and the only way they could be together is to kill the parents. Wilkinson allegedly offered Wade $2,000 to help. Initially, as Terry lay in that hospital bed, he was told that Aaron had made it out of the house that night, out of that fire, but he had no idea the circumstances surrounding her escape. He was under the impression that a miracle had occurred. One of his family members, his daughter, was alive. He was continuously asking the hospital staff, his family that was there, about Aaron. He wanted to see her. He wanted to talk to her. 
There was a point, though, where those around him were forced to tell him the truth, that Aaron had been arrested for involvement in the murders. My sister told me that Aaron's been arrested for involvement in the murders. And when I heard that, I just, I just lost it. I remember grabbing at IVs and tubes that were in me, trying to pull them out. I can't even imagine my entire family is dead. I have a moment of hope thinking that one of them made it out. And then you're told that that one family member actually was part of the cause or the root cause of these murders. I know I already touched on the fact that I wouldn't want to live. And I do understand having multiple children and feeling like you need to live for them because somebody else would need me. I still just, I can't believe he tried so hard to live initially. And now I can imagine not wanting to live. This news completely threw him into a downward spiral as if he wasn't already in one. But it's that idea of you have this huge letdown, then you have this uplifting spark of hope, and then that's taken away again. It's almost like it brings you even further into the spiral. And that's what happened. Because the thought that Aaron was still alive was really the only thing holding him together, giving him the will to live mentally. Now there's the other component to this physically. Terry's body would fight whether he wanted it to or not, and he did make a full recovery. Within days of being released from the hospital, Terry, who was in a very mentally fragile condition, went back to the site of his burned-down family home despite everyone pleading with him not to go. They knew how low he was. They really didn't know if he could handle the site. Really, he didn't know if he could handle the site, but something brought him back to that house. What everyone thought would be a devastating blow for Terry was actually the piece he needed. I went and I stood on the ashes, the place where I had a home and raised three children. I was angry. I said, God, why would you allow this? How would you let something like this happen? Why am I still here? I just don't understand all this. And no sooner than I said that prayer or had that thought, I looked over about five foot away, and there was a piece of paper stuck to a base of a tree. When I read it, they were words that I had just spoke to God. I couldn't understand why you would take my family and leave me behind to struggle along without them. And I guess I still don't totally understand that part of it. But I do believe that you are sovereign. You're in control. And when I read those words, it just brought me to my knees. And I remember just falling to my knees, begin to weep to God. God had just sent me a message. For Terry, this was a huge deal. We talk about his whole life is rooted in this faith that he carries, which has been put to the ultimate test now, the loss of his entire family. He felt that when he got this message, when he went back to the site, that this was from God. If you remember earlier in the episode when Terry recalled saying goodnight to his family the night of the murders, do you remember that part? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. He spoke of Penny, his wife, closing up her Bible, and she laid it down next to a book called Blind Sight that she had been reading. That's where this page of text came from, which contributed even more to Terry feeling like this was a direct message to him from God, and he was very moved by this. He felt directly spoken to, and from this point on, Terry knew that he had to forgive all those involved in the murder of his family. I do feel like it's a pretty moving moment. 
I can see it giving hope. I am definitely not as devout as him, but I can't see the forgiveness piece yet. But the will to live, to carry on, maybe something bigger is happening down the road. I can understand that. Of course, they were all blaming one another. The detectives were saying Aaron was the mastermind, that she was the evil one. Um, But none of that really mattered to me because I chose that I needed to forgive them. And forgiveness isn't always easy. I want to say something before I go any further about forgiveness, about anger, actually. Anger and unforgiveness is like a bitter, it's like a cancer, they say. It'll eat you from the inside out. I've seen people go through a lot less what I've gone through, and now they're bitter, angry people. And I knew I did not want that to be me. I knew if I became angry and bitter, it's not going to bring my family back. It's not going to honor them, and it's certainly not going to honor God. He's exactly right. Forgiveness is probably one of the hardest things you're going to have to do in your life. However, it's one of the most rewarding because if you don't let go of it, you are a bitter bitch. I have lived it for a very long time. And that's probably not God's will, I would imagine. I am capable of forgiving a lot of things and moving on. But there are some things, for me anyways, that have just been somewhat unforgivable. I'm not going to hold on to resentment. I'm not going to wish ill will upon someone. But that doesn't mean I like them, that I wish them the best in life. (laughs) Forgiveness is gray to me. It's not black and white. In these situations like this where there's a moment in your life that's a turning point, we all have them. Huge life events. If you haven't had one yet, you will. Life is coming for you, just like it's coming for me. And he's forced to make one of two choices. Either move forward and take it a hundred or continue to go into this downward spiral. For Terry, this was apparently the path that would benefit him the most mentally to continue living a life that wasn't filled with pain and anger. Now, Terry would take this one step further. He would go on to not only forgive the teens who did this, he would actually go on to fight for Charlie Wilkinson, Charlie Wade, Bobby Joe, and of course his daughter, Erin. He wanted these teens to have a chance at life and redemption. He would end up petitioning the court, pleading that these kids would not receive the death penalty. Everyone else involved in the case, people who knew the Cathy's, they wanted these teens to be put on death row. But Terry would stand firm in his convictions, and he was granted his request despite the pushback from the judicial system. During trial, Charlie Wilkinson, Charlie Wade, and Bobby Joe took full responsibility for the crimes that they committed. Charlie Wade and Charlie Wilkinson both received life without parole. Bobby Joe received 40 years behind bars. Remember her role in this. She was just the getaway driver. So she had no physical role in any of the murders, setting the house on fire, none of it. There was a point where she said she didn't even know what they were going to be doing in there. I don't know if I believe it or not, but think about that. She's a teenager. She got 40 years for driving a car. It is crazy, but I think she knew, right? Yes, but she's also a child. Mm-hmm. And Charlie Wade was her boyfriend. It's another kind of similar situation with Aaron Caffey and Charlie Wilkinson. These kids are making stupid decisions based on a puppy love 
adults make stupid decisions when they think this is their soulmate and they're in love and, you know. Yeah, I just think she had some responsibility as far as reporting it. I think 40 years was overkill. She's not going to serve 40. They always get them out. That's why you got to go over it. It's so stupid. Sometimes these courts will go overboard and they like making an example. Someone's going to have to be the example. She might. I watched a little bit of her talking and her demeanor. She seemed very, very remorseful. And you could tell she was just an idiot kid. I hate to say it, but looking at her physically too, she was very, very overweight. You could tell she had low self-esteem. I don't know if this was her first boyfriend or not, but you could see how she probably was highly influenced at this young age by a man. Yeah. Again, we have those three conspirators there. They confessed completely. They told their side of the story, which matched up. But Aaron Caffey is a bit different. Out of the four involved, she was the only one who never confessed completely and still hasn't to this day. Terry Caffey, however, accepts his daughter's involvement in the murders of his family, but he refuses to believe that she was the mastermind. The evidence shown at trial, provided to the jury, they determined that despite what Terry Caffey wanted to believe about his daughter, she was the one completely responsible for the plot that night. It would not have happened without Aaron. As a result, she received two life sentences plus 25 years and will not be eligible for parole for more than 40 years. People say my dad just wants to brush things under the rug, so to speak, and say that, you know, his daughter didn't know nothing about this. And that's, I mean, I think we've established I did know, but... He says, you know, my daughter did not mastermind this. And, I mean, I didn't. And, I mean, I know that all this looks bad and everything, but I didn't know what they went in and did that night. Unbelievable. Lion's egg of shit. The jury sniffed this out real quick. I do want to add some of the things that were mentioned at trial. Before we wrap this, contrary to what Aaron states that she was not the mastermind, blobbity blue, there was an overwhelming amount of witness testimony and evidence that greatly supported the fact that she was indeed the mastermind. I'm going to briefly go over just a couple bits and pieces that I found interesting to give you an idea of exactly the kind of person we're dealing with here. When Charlie Wade was interrogated immediately after the murders, the detectives asked him if anybody said anything in the car after they had left the house that night following these brutal murders. Charlie stated that Aaron said, holy shit, that was awesome. (gasps) They all stated that she said this separately and that she was thrilled with what they had done. I'm speechless. You weren't in that house when they set it on fire, right? You were in the car waiting for them to come back. And they said when you were pulling away that you said, holy, that was awesome. Anybody say anything in the car after you left the house? Mm-hmm. Boy. Uh, that was awesome. Did you say that? Did you say I'm free? No, sir. 
Charles Wade said you were happier than a kid at Christmas at that point. Do you remember that condom found wrapped in a tissue next to Charlie Wilkinson when they found him in his brother's trailer? Unfortunately, I do. I as well. And that was from sex with Aaron following the events that night. That happened that evening or morning, I guess you could say. They went back to his brother's trailer, had sex, and went to bed after the killing of her entire family. Very callous. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Almost like a celebration, really. Oh, for sure. And can I see kids doing that? Yeah, because they give no Fs, but it's still disgusting. Another disturbing detail that really put the nail in the coffin for me about who Aaron is Prior to this relationship with Charlie Wilkinson, she did have another relationship. She made a very similar request to this boyfriend to rid her of her family. You had a boyfriend before Charlie, right? Didn't you talk to him about killing your parents? You never talked to your ex-boyfriend about killing your parents. Why would he say you did? We actually tracked down Aaron's ex-boyfriend, Michael Washburn. Here's what he had to say. Aaron and I met when we were about 16 years old at a church camp. Aaron got along with everybody. Aaron's parents, Penny and Terry, were very strict. Aaron used to sneak around and disobey her parents. I did not see any troubling signs in Aaron. One day I said, how are you and your parents doing? And she said, I just wish they were dead. A few weeks later, Aaron asked me if I would murder her whole family and burn the house down, and I told her no. I thought, you crazy bitch. I told her to get the hell out of my house. Aaron and I never spoke again after the last conversation. Never thought Aaron would actually have her family killed. He sounds a little, you know, two courts low, whatever you want to say, but he said that Aaron did ask him to do the same thing, and I err on the side of actually believing him. Oh, I believe him 100%, and I love that he called her a crazy bitch. She is fucking crazy. She did an interview with Dr. Phil, and that's kind of what we've been pulling some of this from. She also did an interview with Pierce Morgan. So they sat face-to-face with Aaron. Pierce Morgan was quoted as saying, Aaron is the most evil woman I have ever met. He's done this with many different women and men too on death row in prison for similar acts. She's one of the worst. That says something. As far as Terry Caffey is concerned, I don't think it matters to him at this point whether Aaron was the mastermind or not. He has completely forgiven her. He is devoted to that forgiveness. Even if he felt that she was indeed the mastermind, again, I don't think it matters to him. I've been asked the question so many times, how could you forgive your daughter? She was the easiest one to forgive. Uh, there's just something about the love that a parent has for a child. It's basically what I call unconditional love. And no matter what, and I've told her this to this day, that I would, I love her, forgive her, anything she's done. I love her and always will. Pretty powerful. We just talked about a parental child love, and I do agree it's the most strong love, in my opinion, out there, hands down. I think it's unexplainable. I don't think people understand it until they experience it. Also, side note, I don't think everybody needs to experience it. Parenting is a real bitch. But anyways, 
in my opinion, his religious background, his faith in God, mentally prepare him for forgiveness. That is the whole basis of Christianity is forgiveness. Terry Caffey does visit his daughter at least monthly and talks to her almost daily on the phone. They do have a relationship still to this day after everything that's happened. Terry Caffey is remarried twice since the incident. The first time did end in divorce. He credits the divorce because he felt that he moved on far too quickly after this incident. He has since married his second wife and still married to her. So there is some happiness there. He also has more children now. Yet, even though he has this, I guess you could say, new family, I hate putting it that way, but it is, he still continues this relationship with Aaron because that is his daughter. I am actually thinking about writing one of the guys and saying, why did you kill the kids? This isn't covered. Hey, I don't think that's a bad idea. Why don't you reach out? I think your best bet is going to be Charlie Wade. But if you want a challenge, why don't you hit up Charlie Wilkinson? We'll see what happens. Use your charming smile and personality. Oh, I'm not sending pics anymore. I mean, it gets your foot in the door. I know, but then I'm all worried now. I I just, I don't know if I can do it. Sometimes you have to make a sacrifice. I don't want to sacrifice my life, okay? Are people listening really appreciate it. I hope they appreciate it so much they give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, but (laughs) haven't seen that yet, so, you know. Oh, anyway. We're building back. We're building back. Yeah. Very slowly. Any jokes to uh, end this? Um, It actually fits the story perfectly. The firefighter pulled up and saw the entire church ablaze. The first words out of his mouth were, holy smokes. (laughs) Oh my God, that was one of the lamest jokes I've ever heard, but probably a good one to wrap it on. Just, you know, keep it light. Caffey family approved joke. Tell it at the Christmas table.